0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. And uh, he's also my dad, so dad, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good for us. I always enjoy doing this with you. It's one of the highlights really of my day in my life.
0: Oh, well, thank you, Dad. That's so sweet. Yeah, you're you're wandering toward what you've increasingly referred to as a soft retirement. So, you know, I, I appreciate that you've maintained your commitment to the podcast so far.
1: <laughs> Definitely.
0: So it's been a long and strange and difficult year for many, many people. And as we get toward the end of it and look forward to twenty twenty one, it feels appropriate to start by taking a look back and seeing what, if anything, we can learn from the year that's gone by. So that's what we're going to focus on today. What did 2020 teach us, if anything? And are there good things that can come out, potentially, of what has been generally regarded as quite a mess of a year? Um, So how does that sound to you?
1: Very appropriate.
0: Great. So as a quick reminder, before we get into today's episode, registration for Rick's online Foundations of Wellbeing program is now open. The Foundations program is a year-long course in deep personal development that'll teach you how to change your brain in lasting ways. And it'll also walk you through how to grow 12 key strengths, like courage, confidence, and compassion over the course of a year in your mind and heart. Our holiday sale is going on right now. And if you register, you can get 40% off the purchase price of the program. Also, if you're a podcast listener, you can use the code BEINGWELL10 in all caps. That's BEINGWELL as one word, and then the number 1 and 0 to get an extra 10% off the purchase price. There are also many need-based scholarships available. And if you're a mental health professional, you can receive 20 continuing education credits through the program. So all that said, Rick, let's start with you, if you don't mind. Are there any particular lessons that you've taken yourself in your own experience from this past year?
1: there's several and i'm i want to frame these as not necessarily universals for others so i'm i'm offering them a little diffidently the first lesson is that when things fall apart around you you really are left with what you've developed inside you and it's often revelatory if not you know unnerving to realize that actually inside you the cupboard is largely bare Uh, maybe you haven't developed many inner resources or acquired a kind of an unconditional positive mood inside yourself, a fundamental uh, happiness. Or if you look out there in the world, you start to realize whether it's in your public health systems or the amount of food you have in your home that you can draw upon, you start realizing, wow, we have not invested internally enough or invested in our intimate personal relationships enough or in our larger social systems the the public good the common good and when the storm comes it reveals to us those lack of investments and can motivate us therefore as it did for me whether it was internally or in terms of our basic supplies for minimizing trips to the grocery store and things like that you know what it is actually to invest in ourselves so that was mm. that was one big lesson for me uh, which also includes appreciating what you have grown inside yourself, what you have grown in your relationships, the, um, the people you can really count on, the resources you've built up around yourself, wherever you live, in your work, in your home, um, you can appreciate also what you've grown that, that can mm. help deal with a time of radical change and significant threat.
0: Yeah, for me, that reminds me of something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is this idea of it can happen to us too. Mm -hmm. And often when we view, particularly politically or socially, uh, things that are going really sideways in the world, I'm speaking as an American, it's from this perspective of, oh, it's happening over there. And these are problems that are reserved for somebody else's country, home, neighborhood, life, whatever. But at both the public and the personal level, this year, I think... Really threw into stark contrast how close we all are at every moment to everything just kind of falling apart and going flying off the rails, right? Of course, there have been a lot of very macro, very unusual negative things that have happened over the course of this year. But even so, wow, like it just being clearly revealed how some of those systems that you're talking about have weaknesses in them, have vulnerabilities, which then, of course, moves us toward what can we do inside of our own lives to shore ourselves up so that we're as well resilient as possible in the face of those challenges. And then kind of alongside that for me, still having faith in other people, even though it can can it can happen to us too. Things got really bad this year, um, but at the same time, things didn't dissolve for many people. For some people, they did, but for many people, they didn't dissolve. They were challenging, they were hard, but people were able to overcome them. They were able to meet the challenges that happened to them in their lives. And and to me, that's kind of a positive and hopeful lesson that I'm drawing out of this last year, that even in the face of immense challenge, communities were still able to persevere.
1: Mm. Building on that, another related lesson for me, I kind of think of it in a funny way as the distinction between the global and the local. Mm. And what I mean by that, the global, for example, is how people are handling the plague of COVID-19 at a public health level, what's happening in terms of America's politics, how our election is occurring, that's the global. And there are other aspects of the global, of course. So there's the global, then there's the local. What's it like to experience this breath, this minute, this afternoon, this dinner, this time in the evening? this morning getting up, this brushing one's teeth, this phone call with a friend, this business problem I'm solving, the local. And you know the pain in this back, let's say, the local. And I think it's really important to do what we can for the global, both out of moral principle and out of pragmatic self-interest. Okay, but the real truth is, I'll just speak for myself here, I had invested an enormous amount of attention into the global out of my political and moral and policy concerns, all of which is good and fine and appropriate. But one of the things I began to realize is I was living too much in the global and I Mm -hmm. needed to re-engage energy and attention and investment in the local and appreciate that even as much was falling apart in the global And much as it was appropriate to have compassion and even outrage about those things, meanwhile, so much that was good was happening in the local. Uh, More time with my wife, uh, you know, less business travel, uh, more opportunity to look inward and to just appreciate the simple things, the sparkle of sunlight on a grain of sand in the sidewalk, the little things that are available to just about everybody. And so that was, that was a, gig, a big lesson for me too, an important takeaway about realizing that just because the global is falling apart, the local, if it does, can remain intact. And mm. we can be reassured by that. We can be supported by that. We can draw strength from that. And in fact, by, by focusing on what is intact in the local and still good in the local, we ground ourselves and gird ourselves and firm ourselves up for doing what we can with the global.
0: Another thing that really struck me this year, and I'm sure has struck many, many people, it's the obvious lesson that a pandemic teaches you, but the value of interdependence and interconnection, how we are connected to and reliant on so many people that we do not have a day-to-day experience of. Under normal circumstances, this actually fills me with a lot of hope. And a lot of appreciation for the labors of so many people, who you know work to make the global as good as it can be. Even if I don't experience it in my small local life, the labor of people that I don't see on a public uh, level—people who are working in hospitals, or taking out the trash, or driving buses from point A to point B—and the Obvious risks that those people are exposed to these days that they are not exposed to under normal circumstances. We rely on each other, you know, obviously in ways that are both profound and often invisible. And I think that that can allow us to really drop into a broader sense of compassion and connection towards those who have influenced our lives in many, many, many ways that we will never see. And so that's something that I've been trying to practice with a little bit recently that idea of how can I feel. Warm and grateful towards people that I will never have an opportunity to express gratitude toward, mm. and that's an interesting practice to try to try to play with to express it, even just inside of my mind, or express it in small ways out in the world. And that's been for me a very powerful and useful practice.
1: That's great. That's touching. Um, hmm. It mm-hmm. makes me think about the idea of the pillars of the world. You know, in other words, who are those beings uh, who hold up the world? And the truth is. There are billions of them. And Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. example, with regard to uh, people, healthcare workers right now in the time of COVID, I include in my gratitude very much the people pushing brooms at 2.30 in the morning.
0: Sure, yeah, absolutely.
1: Hospital hallways, yeah. The people who are driving the trucks that bring the supplies to the hospital. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, it's funny too, this was a year of uh, in America and maybe elsewhere in the world too, a kind of facing of the legacy of prejudice, discrimination, racism directed in various toward various groups, certainly including the long legacy of slavery in our country. And one thing that was for me also a really great lesson this year, a, a poignant and sometimes painful one, was appreciating how much my privilege has enabled me to leave out Mm-hmm. To leave out of awareness or not take into account or not have to take into account and it's humbling and kind of upsetting sometimes to realize how easy it's been to just turn away or to leave out or to know something kind of quickly abstractly but then not have it land in your own heart and move you to compassion and outrage and mm-hmm. commitment to be helpful if you possibly can and i I bet I'm not alone in that regard and so th- There's a Zen saying, uh, nothing left out. But of course, we always inherently leave things out, but we cannot leave out our tendency to leave things out. And therefore, we can keep reminding ourselves again and again, what am I not seeing? What am I not Mm. hearing? You know, what is the secret suffering of the person walking alongside me that I'm not listening for or taking into account? And that, that too, for me, has been a big lesson from this year.
0: One of the things that, I've read or heard—I forget which one it was—about privilege is just this idea that privilege fundamentally is not having to think about a certain kind of thing.
1: Yeah, Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about that really, really eloquently.
0: And of course, privilege is—you know—many things. We've done episodes on this in the past, and there are many people who devote their entire lives and their whole work to talking about this particular subject. So we're going to treat it very lightly here, of course. But I think that that's such an encapsulation of why talking about privilege is often really challenging, because it's this idea of the invisible thing that the person who is privileged doesn't see in their life, often the ways in which they just don't have to think about this thing. And it really connects to something I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is that we often lose sight of the painful things that aren't happening to us.
1: Hmm. <laughs> the dog that didn't bark.
0: The dog that didn't bark, the dog that didn't bite us, however you kind of want to think about it. For me, uh, a pregnant example in my life, and obviously this is a very, very small example, I'm not trying to create a false equivalence here, but just a little personal one, is uh, stuff having to do with my physical appearance and particularly my skin. When I was younger, I had really bad skin. I had a lot of acne, a lot of cystic acne, and it was a real source of um, suffering in my life, like psychological suffering. I really thought about it all the time made me feel bad about myself. I was very self-conscious about it, the whole thing. And as I've gotten older and had the privilege of being able to go on a lot of medication for it, um, my skin has gotten better over time. And it is very, very rare in a day for me to think about the fact that I'm no longer suffering over what my skin looks like. Mm. But for me, a good practice, a useful practice has been to kind of remind myself before I walk out the door that I didn't feel like I had to put concealer on my face or that, oh, isn't it cool that I can leave without having to worry about what I look like out in the world. And I think that that's a a pretty good analogy. Obviously, it's a very minor example of this, but a pretty good analogy of a way that we can approach the bad things that aren't happening to us right now. Um, And that we can bring them more into our awareness. And it just gives such an opportunity for the practice of gratitude, which we've talked about in the past in the podcast, just has so many psychological benefits attached to it.
1: Mm. That's great. You know, there's this term or idea, habituation. We habituate. We get Mm. used Mm -hmm. to things. uh, So, for example, and we gradually tune them out. And it's interesting that if the absence of the bad becomes the new normal, we Mm -hmm. habituate to that. Yeah, anonic
0: adaptation, totally. Yeah,
1: we don't notice it. And mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I'll i do this with your mom sometimes. I'll say, honey, why don't you just think about all the cars we're driving next to on the freeway that have not crashed into us? And <laughs> she immediately <laughs> wants me to stop saying that because she, she has magical thinking. She thinks that if you say that, that'll make them crash mm, into you mm-hmm, somehow. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> but it is really, 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 really true. Just think about all the meteorites that have not struck you dead.
0: Sure. Yeah. Whatever you know? it is, all the bolts of lightning, you know, wherever you want to go with it. Of course, we're using slightly ridiculous yeah, yeah, examples, yeah. but that's kind of the point, right? And one of my hopes coming out of 2020 and heading into 2021 is that there will be a point in time where COVID is no longer a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been some really good reports in terms of vaccines and vaccine effectiveness. Um, I. It seems, I mean, we're in a really rough time right now in terms of case totals and rates and things like that, but hopefully the vaccine is effective, hopefully it's a high-quality vaccine, and hopefully it can achieve broad distribution sometime early next year. And hopefully it kind of ends this whole mess on one level or another. Obviously, the residues and the ripples of everything that's happened in this past year will be with us for a long time, including just the enormous cost of life that has happened in 2020. But my hope looking forward is that we don't lose sight of the ways in which our life gets a lot easier in 2021 from the way that it's been in 2020. And that we have an opportunity to kind of take with us and look back on 2020 and go, wow, it's really, really great that I can gather in a group with all of my friends again wow, it's really, really great that I can go to school in person. Wow, it's really, really great that I can hug my dad. And these are all things that I hope that we don't lose sight on and that we have a really strong collective memory around. Because, you know, they're obvious things. They're not always huge things, but I think they're really important.
1: Uh, you know, it's, I was, you made me reflect on another lesson, and I'm going to connect several lessons into sort of yeah, please. one big rant. Here we go. So as you know, I have a lot of background in rock climbing and being in the mountains. And when COVID came, as you actually, I think, was joked me, or maybe it was Laurel who said, Dad, you've been preparing your whole life for this. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is, there are ways in which I do wonder about and think about, you know, what happens when when the thin skim of civilization, like Like when you boil milk, that very thin skin that sits on top of it. What happens when reality bursts through, or or something collapses that skin, and whoa, the fabric starts to fall apart. What are you left with? So I've I've wondered about that, and in particular in the in wilderness, there's a crystal clear binary categorical distinction between safe and maybe not safe, absolute distinction. So if I go climbing with a rope, I know given the way I do it. I have a friend who's holding the other end, I'm putting in protection, the rope is good. I don't think I'm going to fall, but if I do fall, I'm certain that rope will catch me based on how I've approached the climb. So I know that I'm safe. I don't fall on those climbs, but boy, would I not do them without a rope, right? So there's this distinction between I'm sure I'm safe, I'm not sure I'm safe. It's either or. And Using that as an example, what happened for me really early on with, with COVID, particularly when we were still very uncertain about what the lethal risks of this thing were, including for different populations, such as the one I'm in, people in their 60s. So I became crystal clear, oh, because I'm able to part, but I'm gonna deliberately make some sacrifices to live in a bubble of, I'm sure I'm safe. I'm gonna stay in that. If I step outside that bubble, I'm probably still safe because probably the next person I'm talking with isn't infectious in this moment, but I'm not sure anymore. So there was that distinction that was very grounded in a body memory, just the feeling in my body of, I'm sure I'm safe. I'm probably safe, but I'm not sure I'm safe. There's that difference there. And so on the basis then of recognizing that distinction, I was willing to do what I needed to do to take care of myself and to take care of those I cared for. And I think that's a lesson for people. Number one, to claim for themselves, claim for ourselves what we see, what we think is true, what we recognize is true, what we discern is actually the case, the truth. And then on the basis of that, claim the right to value what we value and plan what we plan. Those three things, discernment, valuing, my values are to avoid all risks and to pay certain prices to do that. But just to get to the other side of what I saw is probably about roughly a two-year crisis, which hopefully is gonna turn out to be slightly less than two years long before the dust really settles, at least for fairly um, well-to-do Americans while obviously taking some years to help everybody in the whole world. Okay. so. That then has led to one of the big takeaways. So, takeaway number one know what makes you really safe if you can afford to do it, and claim the right to take action to stay safe, even if other people don't agree with it. More broadly, it goes to the absolute central importance of standing in reality and recognizing what is true. Absolutely central, whether it's what you got to do to fix your faucet or how to improve the quality of the coffee you're making for yourself or Uh, what is needed to repair something with another person, to see what's actually true. And then that has led me this year, uh, in the context certainly of American politics, to realize that for many, many people, that's actually not a foundational principle. And that has been a lesson to appreciate. What we've seen throughout history, certainly, uh, the degree to which some people do not have the same commitments— to telling the truth and standing in the truth that Mm. you do. And what we make of that, I understand that it's not always easy to discover the last detail of the truth, but the simple basics that COVID is a real virus that is highly infectious and very lethal, especially for vulnerable people, uh, and it spreads rapidly, those are truths. And people who are in denial of those truths or make it hard to discern those truths or are or punish others for trying to tell those truths for me those people have lost my vote they've lost my respect and i've come to realize how important it is to stand up at a moral level for truth telling that's one of my own big lessons from this year
0: really very attached to that one of the things that i've thought about that i've thought about a lot this year is something that you actually said to me a long time ago which is about uh, compassion and particularly about compassion for difficult people. Because it's easy to feel compassionate or feel respectful or feel whatever, choose your word, feel positive regard toward somebody that you basically agree with. But one of the things that we talked about in our conversation with Sharon Salzberg for a second was, okay, how do you do that for somebody who you don't like? How do you do that for somebody who you disagree with violently? Particularly about political issues, social issues, related things. And that is a very gnarly topic that we're not going to be able to explore perfectly here. But one of the things that you said to me about this is the idea of compassion being a kind of field that other people move through. And you can still have a compassionate stance in your body, even when somebody that you really dislike moves through your broad field of compassion. And it took me actually a little while to kind of get that. And to have an experience of it myself that felt like really true and authentic and not just put upon of like, be trying to be real Zen and Buddhist, and oh, I'm going to be compassionate for this person, even though I don't like them, because that's like the Buddhist thing to do, or whatever, you know, it, avoiding that and having an actual authentic experience of, oh.
1: as As the great teacher, Mike Tyson, put it... <laughs> Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) Exactly,
0: exactly. So having the kind of problematic person enter your sphere, that is our Mike Tyson equivalent of getting punched in your compassion face, to put it in a certain kind of way. Um, So uh, so anyway, yeah, and, and to have like a real authentic experience of that, of, oh, my good feeling inside of myself is not dependent on the people who move through my sphere. Yeah. And I think that this has been this year has been one long practice in that because so many of the divisions in society have been so turned up and I mean rightfully so, frankly. And there have been so many experiences of just harsh disagreement between groups of people and then the question is, okay, can you still regard people as people? Can you still exist in a state of compassion? Even if you violently disagree with somebody, Mm -hmm. and I mean to the extent to which that's possible, I personally believe that there are some arenas where that is not possible. If somebody is to be direct, if somebody really doesn't believe in a certain kind of person's right to exist, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that that's fundamentally untenable morally. Yeah, to have their vote counted, to not be discriminated against, to whatever—that's really untenable morally to me, and it's very challenging for me to push my compassion toward that person but it is very possible for me to still have a field of non-judgment mm-hmm. when that person moves through my compassionate space because i you just see it clearly you see oh okay these are the things that that person stands for i don't stand for those same things we disagree i'm not going to get really wrapped up in it yeah. um, and i think that that person's a really problematic person yeah. and just being kind of clear about it i think can really free us from a lot of um Internal challenge and complexity, yeah
1: it it helped me to realize too that whether it's at the level of couples sometimes or organizations or more broadly communities and countries, there's a long tendency in our history as social primates for, toward performative grievance, grievance theater, mm. where it's actually not about anything real or it's about taking something real that's a one or a two, let's say, on the 10-point scale of badness and presenting it as if it's an eight or a nine, it's theater. It's actually not about something real. It's just theater to often serve functions of growing and maintaining power and profit of one kind or another. And to realize that, in other words, a fair amount of sometimes what people are saying as soon as you start engaging it as if it's true, then you're, in the, then you're in their script. You're in their theatrical performance. And what's actually freeing is to realize, first, that grievance theater has been done throughout history. Second, it's a very effective, it's problematic, but it's an effective tactic for neutralizing the actual grievances of others by trying to elevate one's own grievances through the theater around it. And and it's done for that reason. That's its function. Um, and also to realize that, you know, at the end of the day, if they're motivated to grievance theater, and that's their commitment, and that's their investment, and that's what helps to maintain group identity, you know, you're just not going to talk them out of it. And they're going to do it. And we don't need to add the secondary, the second darts, you know, the secondary suffering of being stunned by it You know, the first few times it happens, it's natural to be stunned by it. But after it's happened for a while, as Maya Angelou put it, when people show you who who they are or or how they're going to be about certain things, believe them. Then we can disengage the upset. We can, as soon as we start to realize, oh, this is grievance theater. This is performative outrage. This is elevating absolutely groundless complaints with an accusatory topspin as a way to neutralize other enormously legitimate and valid complaints and very appropriate, grounded in reality grievances, oh, that's what it is. It's just a tactic. Then we can disengage from it and keep doing what we can to help things be better. I'm being a little hard-edged here. Uh, my compassion is, you know, is, is awash also in my fed-upness, honestly. And I think sometimes in psychological and spiritual circles, being fed up is pushed away like, oh, it's too intense. Uh, but man, I think sometimes it's appropriate to be fed up. There's a place for just honoring when you've kind of had it with the BS and the, the lies. You've just had it. You see it. It makes me think about the metaphor or truth of the Buddha's awakening, that foundational to his awakening was his recognition of the forces of delusion. You know, I see you, Mara. That's all the Buddha had to say. He didn't argue with Mara because that would get sucked in. He would be sucked into the theater of Mara who would send demons and beautiful maidens and bags of gold and, you know, opportunities to be enormously powerful as a way to seduce or trick the Buddha. But no, the Buddha said, I see you. And um, I think, you know, being fed up, having, you know, had it, What lies in hypocrisy is a way of, I see you. I see you for what you
0: are. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com beingwell Being Well today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot beingwell Being Well. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OSO1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like Being Well, I think you'll really enjoy The Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment. And it speaks to how much value people get out of the show dr john has a phd in counseling and he's been working with people for over 20 years and the show has a very cool format real people call into the show and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges maybe it's something related to their relationships anxieties or emotional well-being he explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Delani Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delani Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. Yeah, to me, a lot of this relates to questions around non-attachment. I think that this year has been one long exercise in non-attachment, particularly non-attachment around the way that, the ways in which we cannot control the behavior of other people. Whether that be about whether people wear a mask or they vote the way that we want them to do or not want them to do, whether they see the things that we believe to be completely apparent, whether they disagree with us, agree with us, whether we can control how long the quarantine lasts, you know, all of those things, just one long reminder of the profound truth of we just don't have a lot of control a lot of the time. And to me, again, reinforcing something that I've said many, many times on this podcast, the importance of finding agency in the things that we do control. And the ways in which having attachment to what we can't control is a fundamental source of suffering in human life. Now, of course, we all want to create good change, positive change out in the world. We all want to do the things that we can to make the world a better place. And how you balance that with non-attachment is a complex question, right? And for me, it comes to focusing on that which we can control to a degree, even inside of our own relatively small sphere of influence, feeling like we've done what we can, trying to live our lives in a moral and an upstanding way to the extent possible, and as you're saying, trying to see clearly the ways in which other people are not doing the same thing. And deep inside coming to terms with the reality that they're just not all gonna agree, you know, and being okay with that, being deeply fundamentally okay with that, not privileging it, not saying it's okay for people to believe a horrible thing or behave in a horrible way, But coming to terms with the fact that that behavior is going to exist out in the world. And then it's about, okay, how are we going to respond to it agently inside of our own lives? So if anything is a reminder of non attachment, I think it's been the past year. Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, to bring it down to earth and in couples, uh, you know, I've worked with families a lot. And I think that arguably one of the drivers of a lot of dysfunction in relationships and in families, let's say, is actually not enough claiming or owning of the authentic stance of feeling fed up with something. And what I mean by this is when people are just sort of sputtering or bickering or picking at little things, nagging about this, carping about that, that's a way to avoid just owning what you're really fed up about and matters to you, distinct from all the other stuff that's just not a big deal. And you might as well come to live with it and quit complaining about it. In part, in order to clear the space to really complain about whatever it is you're genuinely fed up about. And so I've known a number of people, especially people who in terms of social structures typically women and families uh you don't feel the right to really talk about what they really feel fed up about you could think about the 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 male version of that i've definitely been socialized into some of that myself where i didn't feel in my kind of stoic role that it was appropriate to just say wow fed up i've just kind of had it i don't feel listened to i don't feel like i have a role here i feel like i'm just off to the side you know what happened to my you know, my intimate partner, or whatever, you know, for different reasons, people could have a difficulty in just saying, basta, enough, you know, I'm fed up. I think that's really interesting, actually, to observe the ways in which it's just difficult for people to go all in with their chips around a particular thing. At least as an opening stance, I just got to be real with you here. I just feel really. I'm unhappy about this. I'm upset with mm, it. It uh-huh. seems unfair. It seems unjust. are a lot of little things. It's not a one-off. It's, you know, there's something important here. And yeah, I want to say coming into this, which by the way is a skillful way to do it, I'm hot right now. I'm pissed off. You know, I've built up a head of steam about this. I could have talked about it earlier. Maybe I should have talked about it earlier. Maybe I'm wrong on the facts. I'm sure there's more here that I don't know. Um, I recognize that me being kind of intense about this is uncomfortable for you. All that said, in the service of our relationship, and because you do matter to me and our relationship matters to me in various ways, I have to kind of own it and tell the truth that this is really bugging me. That moment in a soulful way, you say, you know, this is not right. This is wrong. Claim that communication, including in the public space. I don't know if this is on brand for us, uh, for being well, or,
0: cause I'm. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think it's fine. I, I, I think that part of what you're saying, I mean, let me know what you think, is something that I've really wrestled with is my own tendency to not want to absorb other people's anxiety or concern or fears. And because I don't want to be stressed out, because I don't want to feel anxious, because I don't want to be afraid or fearful or whatever, sometimes I think I can have a tendency to kind of minimize how bad a situation is. Because I don't want to think about a situation being bad, right? I want the situation to be happy. And that's been something that I've has, again, been a real lesson for 2020 for me, or from 2020 for me, that it's okay and not only okay but actually good and useful and helpful to see clearly how bad things are when they're bad mm-hmm. to be honest with yourself about yeah. wow this is a disastrous situation because that acknowledgement yeah it comes with some discomfort but it allows you to take effective actions like you can't change a situation if you aren't acknowledging how problematic it is and i i mean again i think that that's just been so present in the last year
1: yeah and one aspect of call it being fed up having had it let's say can be for the sake of other people so we can step into this place for the sake of others too and of course it's really important as always to be uh careful about pitfalls i mean i'm talking about and i'm embodying to some extent a certain fieryness a certain intensity and uh, when you start moving down the highway, not at 25 miles an hour when it's all really mellow, but when you're zooming along at 80 miles an hour, as I am kind of right now with a certain intensity, you especially need to drive carefully and make sure you don't run over anybody mm-hmm. <laughs> or you know, bang into the guardrails too much, let alone fly off the cliff. So obviously be careful about it. But I really do think there's a place for reclaiming appropriate moral outrage that calls it like it is, really, early and directly with confidence. Obviously be careful of the pitfalls, but to to claim it and to claim what you see. And I think we're inheriting a certain lack of people standing up and saying, I've had it. And um, I think one of the takeaway lessons for me, at least, from 2020 may seem counterintuitive. It's certainly to be at peace with what's outside your control Well. Also being prepared to really stand in the moral confidence and moral courage that says, I'm fed up, enough.
0: Mm-hmm. So we have a lovely community over at patreon.com slash And I asked many of the people who support the show to offer their lessons that they learned uh, from the last year. And we got a lot of comments, and they were honestly really lovely, heartfelt comments from many people. And one of the things that I heard a lot was clarity and communication, and uh, community alongside that. Clarity, good communication, community, kind of three Cs, as some of the major themes in what people wrote. The value of community for our own mental health and the consequences when community falls away. The importance of clear communication between different kinds of people, and whether that be in a family or on the level of a nation state. And then clarity, seeing clearly, kind of as you're saying here, Dad, you know, what are the things that are truly problematic? What are the things that are true and untrue? And how can we do work inside of ourselves to be less and less biased in a variety of different ways? How can we see more clearly? The things that are going on outside of us and acknowledge them openly, and then move into trying to solve those problems. And how, really, just when things fall apart, they cast into relief some of the structural challenges that we face. They reveal character, they show us what really matters. Alongside that, one of the things that I uh, heard a lot in what was being written was the importance of flexibility and open mindedness. How we can slow down and release attachment to the things that lie outside of our control. Yes but also just creating multiple outcomes that are all good outcomes. If you're really narrowly attached to only one plausible outcome, you're not going to be happy much of the time. That's just kind of the truth of, truth of life. So the more flexible, open, expansive you can be in the things that you really choose to care about, the things that really matter to you, the better things are probably going to go for you. And then maybe finally, recognizing the presence, as you're really saying here, Dad, of anger and outrage and using the kind of motivating force of anger or moral indignation to create positive change, whether it's in the local or in the global, without falling into some of the damages that can come to our mental health of hatred or uh, disregard for a certain kind of person. And Man, 2020 has been a exercise in walking that particular tightrope. How do you blame oh your rightful outrage, as you have done during this conversation, without falling into the kind of um, the the trap in the mind that anger yep. can create of excessive rumination, excessive painful hatred, obs- just obsessiveness yeah. in general. I think is something that, I mean, geez, I really struggled with this year, obsessing over some of the bad things that were going on. Yeah. While also, of course, acknowledging these things and being honest about these things and going, yes, this is a huge problem, while also being mentally healthy and preserving your mental health. And that whole dance has been the dance we've all been doing for the past eight months here. And it is a hard dance to do. And for me, it just moves me into an appreciation for the ways in which to get through this year you had to be an effective coper certainly to get through this year without like long term psychological damage you did pretty great you were a very effective coper if you made that happen and uh, so you know i think it's appropriate for all of us to give ourselves appropriate acknowledgement for that and suitable acknowledgement for that
1: you know that's really great it's like still here
0: yeah still here still here even after all of it still here yeah yeah,
1: I have a friend who sends me photographs from time to time um with the caption still here. And they're typically pictures of nature, a cloud, a river, a tree, still here. And I think of maybe the double entendre of still that the stillness, you know, that which is enduring is here. And mm-hmm. so yeah, just as you say, getting to the end of this year, if you're if you still have a pulse, if you're still standing, if you're walking and talking. You had a good year (laughs) considering everything.
0: Mm, Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. So, hey, we're getting towards the end here. Maybe to, uh, if we can, end this podcast on a more positive bent because we've spent this episode looking back over what was a real challenging year. So, many of the lessons from it were similarly, you know, uh, reflecting on really difficult experiences. What's something that you're trying to take forward with you into 2021?
1: You're asking me?
0: Yeah, I'm asking you, dude.
1: Well, um, I appreciate that, actually. Hmm. Uh, Feed the roots. What I mean by that is I'm clearing space myself after spending close to 50 years, probably, with a to-do list and a lot of drive and a lot of doing this. So I'm I'm clearing space in my life. You know, I'm able to do it. We could say advantage, privilege in part that enables me to do it. But I'm, I'm actually very drawn to what is enduring. You know, this year in some ways has been an intense, it's like the spin cycle, whatever, of a washing machine just... And um, there's been so much agitation, so much Change and storm and turmoil, disturbance uh, that I, maybe like a lot of people, am more and more drawn to. Wow, (laughs) what endures? What endures? So that's what I'm focusing on more and more in 2021. And for me, things that endure are good relationships, like with you, nature, also something that endures, including the physical universe altogether, the stars above. You know the earth below, and personal practice, deepening personal practice, tilting more into that, resting in what is perennial rather than the ephemeral, more and more. That's personally where I'm going to try to go.
0: Hmm. Well, that's a wonderful reflection, Dad. So thanks for that.
1: Yeah, and, and to be clear, one can rest in what's well, interesting, and I like it because it's it's challenging is to rest in the perennial while engaging the ephemeral, (laughs) while doing one dish after another, while breathing Mm -hmm. one breath after another, while doing one email after another, one podcast for another. How How do we stay in touch with in a genuine way that's not abstract or hocus pocus with what feels unconditioned, you know, unfabricated, unchanging? less subject to arising and passing away while we engage arising and passing away. Mm, mm -hmm. And so this is not an otherworldly kind of thing. I'm not heading into a cave in Tibet and (laughs) and all the rest of that. Uh, But yeah, what endures? You know, your own goodness endures, your own Mm. consciousness, your own awareness, uh, your love, um, that which is not subject to rust and tarnish That's what lasts. So what is that for you? Whoever you are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's the perennial that you want to invest in and stand in as you skillfully engage the ephemeral?
0: Yeah, I think that's a lovely reflection and certainly makes me think about my own life. And I think that's a good note as any to end this episode of the podcast on. Unless you want
1: to take a crack at that question, young man.
0: Oh, sure, yeah. (laughs) I've thought a lot the past year about discipline and what does it mean to be disciplined. Mm. Whether that be pursuing the right kinds of goals because for me discipline isn't just about you know sticking your butt in the chair and working really hard or going to the gym at the schedule you want to go to the gym in or practicing you know your instrument as frequently as when you want to practice it for it's about being doing those things toward the ends that you actually want to accomplish in your life. So it's kind of a broader reflection on what's really important to you and how are you going to do the things inside of your life to make those things happen. And particularly in the kind of limited option world that we've existed in with COVID where I I think a lot of people have found their options, their flexibility really constrained, that idea of what can we still work toward in a disciplined fashion and what can we do inside of our own lives that we fully control. Um, that can lead us toward more positive events. And that's something that I've really been thinking about. And I think that focusing on discipline in my, in my life broadly is something that I'm really going to be thinking about in 2021. And what can I influence? What can I control? Where can I claim agency where I maybe haven't claimed agency in the past? And uh, yeah, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot and will probably think about a lot as well in the year to come.
1: That's great. You probably know the root of the word for discipline to be a disciple of something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah. uh, I think about the ways in which we often, I certainly have, you know, manage discipline by pushing myself up the hill.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: but that's different from being a disciple of something that draws you downhill with mm-hmm. the wind at your back. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, that shift is really an interesting one, as you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to uh, come into more of a connection with what is it easy to be disciplined toward? Yeah, And that being a kind of indicator mm-hmm. toward maybe some of the spaces for more good efforts. Uh, if you're really, really, really struggling to be disciplined towards something, there could be a lot of different root reasons for that. Some of them might be psychological in nature, have to do with you know developmental structures, whatever it might be. Or it could be that, hmm, maybe this isn't just the pursuit for me fundamentally. And uh, being able to tease those threads apart and find what the answer is there, I think, is really challenging and is something that certainly merits a lot of personal investigation. That's beautiful. Good. Thank Thank you. Thank you for us. Yeah, maybe on that note, it's probably a good note to close today's episode on. So today we talked about lessons from 2020. We really went all over the place here. Some of the major themes were the truths of interdependence and interconnection, the idea of finding the truth and clarity in our lives individually, and then seeing the truth where possible um, out in the broader world and being honest with ourselves about what those truths are, being clear about the ways in which other people are not always going to behave in the fashion that we want to behave, while also being honest about having appropriate moral indignation from time to time about the ways in which that behavior is simply inappropriate, regardless of the fact that we can't necessarily do something ourselves to stop it. And that dance of wanting to create positive change while also being real about the limits of our own individual influence has been such a dance over the last year and has been such a major theme of 2020. Some of the other things that came up during the conversation were non-attachment, you know, of course, being invested in good ends without being negatively attached to the results of those good ends. And then also gratitude and finding the opportunity for happiness, even in a very challenging life, as I think many people have experienced during the last year. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to Rate it, review it, subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. You can also send us an email if you would like at contact at beingwellpodcast.com. I read every email we get. So if you have something that you would like to see us talk about on the show, that is a great place to send an email. Also, if you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can join us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. For just the cost of a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show. And you'll also receive a variety of bonuses and extras in return. So again, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the podcast, and we'll talk with you soon.